Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. Our essay this week is by W. David Bushart, Associate Dean and Professor of Theology at Denver Seminary in Colorado. The title of Professor Bushart's essay is called Dragged Along, and it's based upon the lectionary texts for Sunday, July the 16th, 2006. Into our cultural cacophony of endless noise, the lectionary for this week offers a piece of radical wisdom. In Psalm 85, verse 8, the psalmist writes, I will listen. In an interview late in his life, the Swiss psychiatrist and Christian Paul Tournier widely regarded for his perceptive insights about the human condition, made the following observation. Quote, People lack silence. They no longer lead their own lives. They are dragged along by events. It's a race against the clock. I think that what so many, so many people come to see me for is to find a quiet, peaceful person who knows how to listen and who isn't thinking all the time about what he must do next. If your life is chock full already, there won't be room for anything else. Even God can't get anything else in. And so it becomes essential to cut something out." End quote. I believe that Tournier was correct in his analysis. Many people probably came to him and many people today probably go to counselors and friends of all sorts, hoping to connect with what Tournier calls a quiet, peaceful person who knows how to listen. As I thought about Tournier's words, I wondered if the same is not true in some sense for God. I wonder how often God longs for someone who will listen to him. Psalm 85 verse 8 again. I will listen to what God the Lord says. Sometimes God says things that we would rather not hear. The Old Testament prophet Amos once had a vision of God standing next to a wall that had been built, quote-unquote, true to plumb, that is, perfectly straight and upright. Amos chapter 7, verses 7 to 9. In the text this week, Amos then heard the Lord say, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Holy places would be destroyed, and a sword would be brought against God's elect people. Whereas Amos, the small-town farmer-turned-prophet, was attentive to this disturbing and rather unpatriotic news from Yahweh, the priest Amaziah turned a deaf ear to the message. Get out, he screamed at Amos, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Amos 7 verse 12. The priest Amaziah could only defend the political status quo of King Jeroboam against what he interpreted as a conspiracy. Amos, somehow, heard what most people of that time and place did not want to hear. Similarly, 
The Gospel for this week reports that in sending out the twelve apostles as spokespersons for God, Jesus gave them authority over evil spirits. But then he added, quote, Take nothing for the journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belts. This could not have been welcome advice to the twelve. Furthermore, anticipating that many people would neither welcome them nor listen to them, they were, after all, going to proclaim a message of repentance, Jesus instructed his followers to shake the dust off your feet when you leave as a testimony against them. Mark chapter 6, verse 11. So sometimes God says things that we would rather not hear, but not always. At other times, God says things that we gladly receive. In the epistle for this week, Paul tells the Christ followers in Ephesus that, quote, God has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he has lavished on us. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 8. He goes on to say in chapter 1, verse 13, And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. I will listen to what God the Lord says. Immediately following his pledge, the psalmist gives voice to both kinds of messages from God, those that we welcome and those that we would rather not hear. We read in Psalm 85, verse 8, God promises peace to his people, his faithful servants, but let them not turn to folly. And then again, Peace be with you to those who honor and obey him. Psalm 85, verses 9 and 12. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. Then the Lord will indeed give what is good. These words of affirmation and invitation are easy to hear. And they are spoken by the God of the plumb line who confronts the spiritual and political status quo from Amos chapter 7. The God who sends out spokespersons with neither bread nor money with a message of repentance. Mark chapter 6. The psalmist describes this God as loving, yes, but also as righteous. In the face of our human arrogance and failure to listen, this God, says the psalmist, is capable of quote-unquote fierce anger, Psalm 85, verse 3. Nonetheless, or perhaps we should say because of this, we do well to listen to this God. God eagerly turns away from his anger, and in what the psalmist calls unfailing love, he turns toward those who listen. And those who listen to the voice of God will be blessed by and become witnesses to his love and faithfulness, his righteousness and peace. Psalm 85, verse 10. God eagerly longs to give what is good to those who listen to him. 
In listening to this God, we can live such that we are not, in Tournier's words, merely dragged along by events. Almighty and loving God, amidst the ceaseless noise of our day and age, give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to follow your voice of love. And now for further reflection. Consider a sign that I saw at a local church which read, quote, God is still speaking, end quote. Second, what challenges do you encounter in trying to listen to God? Third, how ought we to distinguish between hearing the true voice of God as opposed to our own human voices? And finally, how do you think Amos and the Twelve Apostles felt about the word of the Lord that they heard? Dragged Along, a guest essay by W. David Bushart for Sunday, July 16th, 2006. For books this week, I review a book called Dark Ages America, The Final Phase of Empire by Morris Berman, New York, Norton, 2006, 385 pages. In his earlier declamation of national decline called The Twilight of American Culture, published in the year 2000, cultural historian and social critic Morris Berman described the dusk that had settled over American culture. His latest book, Dark Ages America, argues that we have regressed to a medieval-like darkness from which we will never emerge. He does not use these evocative metaphors for mere rhetorical effect either. While many on the right celebrate what they think is our global and imperial hegemony, Berman, the cultural curmudgeon, argues the counterintuitive position that we are in literal and catastrophic decline as a civilization. He draws comparisons to the fall of Rome in four broad areas. The rollback of the Enlightenment in which religion triumphs over reason, the breakdown of education, the legalization of torture, and finally the marginalization of America from the rest of the world in areas like health care, environment, entertainment, science, work, incarceration rates, violent crime, television, pornography, children, and community. I happen to agree with Borman's thesis, at least at some level, but I thought his argument was weak for a number of reasons. His position is not new, of course. You might read Robert Kaplan's book, An Empire Wilderness, Travels into America's Future, from 1998. The more recent book, American Theocracy by Kevin Phillips, 2006, or in a slightly different vein, Jared Diamond's book, Collapse from the year 2005, all of which have made similar arguments. Berman spends almost half of his book on American foreign policy and globalization, which provides him an occasion for predictable left liberal camp. He's merciless, for example, when it comes to George Bush Jr., to the point of ad hominem pettiness. 
His personal anecdotes are interesting, but not a way to make a convincing argument. His casual, if at times erudite, style is prone to overstatement. Still, he does not spare Clinton or the Democrats, whom he also describes as quote-unquote bankrupt. And he's careful to affirm Walter McDougall's assertion that quote, no large nation on earth has provided more stability, prosperity, security, and liberty to more people than has the United States, end quote. The ultimate issue is whether what he says is true, that to its own self-destruction, America now construes the world in a Manichaean fashion. You are either good or evil, in trying to remake the new world disorder in our own image. Hegemonic empires, Henry Kissinger once noted, almost automatically elicit universal resistance which is why all such claimants have sooner or later exhausted themselves. Morris Berman, Dark Ages America, The Final Phase of Empire. For film this week, I review Good Night and Good Luck from the year 2005. George Clooney wrote, directed, and starred in this historical docudrama about the 1953 hostilities between television commentator Edward Murrow of CBS and Joseph McCarthy, whom he condescendingly throughout the film refers to, quote, refers to as, quote, the junior senator from Wisconsin, end quote. McCarthy, of course, accused Murrow and many others of communism. Murrow, for his part, stood up to McCarthy's muckrating. More broadly, even at its dawn, Murrow openly worried that television would become a medium that would, as he said, distract, delude, amuse, and insulate us, rather than teach, illuminate, or inspire. He also decried the conflicts of interest between television's corporate advertisers the government's efforts to spin propaganda, the military journalistic independence, and the viewing public. We must never, he said, quote, confuse dissent with disloyalty, end quote. Can news ever be neutral? Should it even try to be neutral? Does not most every perspective somehow censor the news with its own commitments and predispositions? Given the radical polarizations of our contemporary political context, due in part to the role of the media, this is a film that deserves viewing and discussion of the many questions it raises. At several junctures in the film, Murrow insists that television viewers and the body politic get what they deserve. As he says, quote, our history will be what we make it, end quote. Good Night and Good Luck was filmed in black and white. It includes original footage of the McCarthy hearings and won six Academy Award nominations. Good Night and Good Luck, starring George Clooney, from the year 2005. And finally for this week, we've posted a poem by Robert Frost, who lived from 1874 to 1963 entitled The Oven Bird. 
There is a singer everyone has heard, loud, a midsummer and midwood bird, who makes the solid tree trunk sound again. He says that leaves are old and that for flowers, midsummer is to spring as one to ten. He says the early petal fall is past when pear and cherry bloom went down in showers on sunny days a moment overcast. In comes that other fall we name the fall. He says the highway dust is over all. The bird would cease and be as other birds, but that he knows in singing not to sing. The question that he frames in all but words is what to make of a diminished thing. Robert Frost, The Oven Bird Thank you for joining journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, July 16th, 2006. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.